Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we have a talk from James Jordan on the book of Leviticus, and this series on the book of Leviticus will run for the next month or so on our Friday episodes. We do invite you to check out those links in the show notes. Specifically, subscribe to our YouTube channel and catch up on our video series, Walking Through the Book of Revelation with Peter Lightheart, if you haven't already. We've released 26, 27 videos in that series at this point when I'm recording this intro, and we have a lot more to come. As always, we want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan in the book of Leviticus. The Book of Leviticus. The Book of Leviticus is one of the most seldom studied books in the Bible. For an obvious reason, it abounds in all kinds of obscure details that are very difficult for us to learn and remember and seem terribly irrelevant to our lives as Christians. Unfortunately, to study the Book of Leviticus in such a full way, as to begin to really see all the relevance that it might have goes way beyond what we can do in six introductory lectures. But we can, hopefully, get you familiar enough with the book of Leviticus and give you enough clues and interpretive cues that as you read it and think about it in years to come, it will come more and more alive to you. There's no way we can read through the book of Leviticus on these tapes, but hopefully... As we do go through and look at it section by section and explain what's going on, it will come clear to you and you'll find it to be of help. Now, in order to come to grips with the book of Leviticus, which is our first lecture, Coming to Grips with Leviticus, we need to get before us God's fivefold action in history. And at the beginning of each of these studies in the Pentateuch, we have taken note of that, and let's take note of it again. If we look back at Genesis chapter 1, we'll find that when God acts in history, when he first created the world, we see that after the world was made, God laid hold of his creation. God laid hold of it, and having taken hold of his creation, he would divide it and restructure it and give new names to it. And this we see in the first several days of the week. God separated the heavens above from the earth beneath. He separated the waters above from the waters below and so forth. These acts of dividing and restructuring and giving new names to the things that result. God calls the end product of these acts of restructuring by new names. The third thing that we see God do is he distributes out what he has made to his creation. He appoints rulers and governors. And as he does this, he gives laws to these rulers and governors. He tells the fish that they will rule over the waters, and he tells them to be fruitful and multiply. He tells man that he will rule over everything, and he tells man a bunch of rules to keep. And so this third section where God distributes his creation is also a section where God gives laws. The fourth thing that we see God do in Genesis 1 is at the end of each of his actions, he passes judgments. He looks at what he's done, and he evaluates it as good. And we call these sanctions positive or negative sanctions or evaluations. God evaluates what he has done and calls it good. And finally, God 
relaxes and rests and appoints a successor to take over the creation, and that's man. Man is set up to be God's successor, the image of God, the Son of God, who will rule the world, and now man will take hold of the creation. And man will, having taken hold of the creation, give thanks to God, which is an additional step that he must perform. Man has a sixfold action. And then man will divide and restructure the world through historical process. Man will appoint rulers and governors and distribute the world to them and give laws. Man will pass judgments on what he's made, evaluated as good or bad. And man will have successors and children who will follow him. And so, in this way, the world is set up and this pattern is established. Now, very roughly speaking, the five books of Moses follow this pattern as God establishes, in a world of sin, reestablishes his covenant. And again, if we look at these five stages, we can see in the book of Genesis, with the call of Abraham, God laying hold on a particular person and calling him. And throughout the book of Genesis, the work of dealing with the patriarchs primarily has to do with God's sovereign action in calling them and establishing them in their calling. Now, when we get to the book of Exodus, we see God break his kingdom down and restructure it. No longer will there be a rule by individual patriarchs, but now there comes to be a rule by elders. No longer will they worship at altars under the sky, but they'll worship at the tabernacle. The people are broken down and restructured, and God gives them a new name, the children of Israel, God gives himself a new name, Jehovah, uh, the God who keeps covenant. And that's what we find in the book of Exodus. Now, in Leviticus, we find the distribution of this kingdom to its rulers. God establishes the priests and the people to be the rulers in the kingdom, and he gives them laws. And so Leviticus is primarily a book of laws. There are a few historical events in the book, but primarily it is a book of laws. We find more laws in Leviticus than anywhere else, but they're laws that we don't keep anymore because we're not under the Old Covenant. And so they seem strange to us. But the laws of sacrifice and the laws regarding clean and unclean animals and leprosy and all the laws regarding who you can marry and who you can't and how the priests are to behave and what kind of people can be priests and so forth, what kind of sacrifices are to be offered on what occasions, uh, all the rest, those are the laws, and those are the primary laws of the kingdom because the most important aspect of human life is how man interfaces with God. And so worship is primary in life over social affairs. Of course, if we wrong our neighbor, that interferes in our relationship with God, but we all realize that the religious dimension of life is primary, and Leviticus deals with that. So it is the book of laws, the laws of the kingdom. Now, when we come to Numbers, we find Numbers, the book of Numbers, has primarily to do with the imposition of sanctions. God's people are there constituted as an army. Leviticus doesn't speak of the people as an army, but Numbers does, right at the beginning. The people are enrolled, they're made into an army, they're put on the march, they're called to execute God's judgments, and when they refuse to do so, then God judges them. And Numbers has to do with judgments throughout. It's a book of evaluations and judgments. It follows on the end of Leviticus. The next to the last thing we find in Leviticus is God promises the people that if they obey, they'll be blessed. If they disobey, he will judge them. And when we get to Numbers, we see that implemented right away. That becomes the book of judgments. Finally, we come to Deuteronomy, 
And Deuteronomy is the book of succession. Moses is about to retire. There's a whole new generation of people. And so now the covenant is passed on to these new people. And the law is published again in a different form because there have been changes and the law itself has changed in terms of the way it is set out to the people. Now, having said this, by way of context, general context then, Leviticus becomes the book of laws where God, having set up his new kingdom, and having changed the way in which the world is organized, now distributes it and apportions responsibilities to various people within that kingdom. Now that by way of a general overview, let's turn next to a consideration of the context of Leviticus. And as I say, Leviticus is a strange and foreign book to us. I think that most of you listening to me probably could not list the five main sacrifices set out in the first five and a half chapters of Leviticus, could you? And if you could, could you tell me what order they come in? The burnt offering, and then the cereal offering, and then the peace offering, and then the purification offering, and then the reparation offering. Those are the five offerings. Why are there five different ones? What does it mean that they're given in this order? Could you tell me about that? You probably don't know it. In fact, the idea that you have in mind is that the book of Leviticus is so complicated with all of these laws. This is not in your notes, but just by way of getting familiar with Leviticus, let's look at just how complicated all of this is by looking at the very first chapter. It says in Chapter 1, verse 3, if you bring a burnt offering, if the layman's offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. And he shall slay the young bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons the priest shall offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood around on the altar that's at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And then the layman will skin the burnt offering and cut it into its pieces, and the sons of Aaron the priest will put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And then Aaron's sons the priest will arrange the pieces, the head, the soot over the wood that is on the fire that's on the altar, its entrails, however, and its legs, the layman will wash with water, and the priest will offer up in smoke all of it on the altar for a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. Now look at all those details there. Now I've just read that over. Do you remember them? And you know, as you read through Leviticus, there's just paragraph after paragraph of details here. We glance at chapter 2, starting in verse 4. Now, when you bring an offering of a cereal offering baked in an oven, it will be unleavened cakes of fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened wafers spread with oil. And if an offering is a cereal offering made on the griddle, it will be of fine flour, unleveled, and mixed with oil. And you will break it into bits and pour oil on it, and it's a cereal offering. Now, if your offering is a cereal offering made in a pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. And when you bring in the cereal offering that's made of these things to the Lord, it's presented to the priest, and he will bring it to the altar. And then he will take up from the grain offering its memorial portion and offer it up in smoke on the altar as an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. And then it goes on. Now, I just read those details. Do you remember them? Did you know them before you started playing this tape? Or do you remember them now? 
Look at all those details. And Leviticus is just one detail after another. And it overwhelms us. And that's why when we read the Bible through, we kind of skim these chapters along until we get to chapter 10. And we read about the death of Nadab and Abihu. And that's interesting and exciting. But it only lasts about three verses. And then it gets dull again. And we go on down to chapter 24. And, well, here's a man who cursed God. And he's put to death. And that's exciting and interesting. And then it gets dull again. There are all these jubilee laws and everything. It just... Detail after detail. Every every verse is different. Look over at chapter 20. One of the embarrassing chapters in the Bible. But look, this is a chapter that tells us if you have carnal relations with someone that's near to you, that's already one flesh with you, you're not allowed to marry them. Well, if you have relations, then you may have to go ahead and marry them in some circumstances, but you're not supposed to have one flesh relationships with people that you are already very close to in a one flesh relationship. But notice all the details here, starting in verse 10. If there's a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. If there's a man who lies with his father's wife, he's uncovered his father's nakedness, both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. Now that's added. Why the difference? If there's a man who lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed confusion. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. Well, is there a reason why this is confusion and what we just read before was not? Or is that the right implication? If there's a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act, and they shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. If there's a man who marries a woman and her mother, it's an immorality. Both he and they shall be burned with fire, that there be no immorality in your midst. See how the details change in almost every case? If there's a man who lies with an animal, he shall surely be put to death, and you shall also kill the animal. If there's a woman who approaches any animal to mate with it, you shall kill the woman and the animal. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. But the details are different in each case. And then it goes on. These are the ones that are put to death. Now, if there's a man who takes his sister, his father's daughter, or his mother's daughter, so that he sees her nakedness and she sees his nakedness, it's a disgrace. And they shall be cut off in the sight of the sons of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness, and he bears his guilt. So he's guilty, but they both shall be cut off, which probably implies that they should go ahead and be married since they've committed this act. It was wrong to do it, but now that it's been done, they're married. That is interpretation that has gained a lot of prominence in recent years as scholars have looked at this more carefully. If there's a man who lies with a menstruous woman and uncovers her nakedness, he's laid bare her flow, she's exposed the flow of her blood, both of them shall be cut off from among their people, which in this case just means that they're unclean for a while. Uh, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister or your father's sister, for such a one has made naked his relative, in other words, his flesh, and they will bear their guilt. Now, that's different from being cut off from the people, but what does it mean? If there is a man who lies with his father's uncle's wife, he has uncovered his uncle's nakedness, they shall bear their sin. They shall die childless. If there is a man who takes his brother's wife, it is an impure deed, he has uncovered his brother's nakedness, they shall be childless. The details differ in each case, and why? Now, did you know all those details, or did you just have a general idea that you weren't supposed to marry close relatives? You see, Leviticus abounds in details. And who could ever learn all this stuff? Who could ever keep all these laws? Actually, if you stop and think about it, it wasn't very hard. 
None of you have ever thought about marrying or having physical relations with anyone that was close to you incestuously. At least I hope you haven't. I hope that you haven't grown up in that type of uh, environment. If you have, I hope you've been delivered from it. But for most of us, it hasn't been a common problem. And it wasn't hard in Israel to keep these laws either. You just didn't do this type of thing. Well, the laws weren't particularly hard to keep, so you didn't have to think about them. Well, the people in the ancient world didn't eat snails. They didn't eat dogs and cats any more than we do. And they weren't tempted to eat those animals. And they didn't eat pork. And they didn't eat shrimp. But you see, they weren't tempted to eat them either. Because to them, eating pigs was like eating dogs. They just didn't think about it. It never occurred to them to eat a pig. Other nations round about didn't eat pigs either. It wasn't just the Jews who didn't eat pork. Now, God had told them not to eat pork, as we'll see. But it wasn't that hard to keep. Any more than if God came and told us not to eat dogs and cats, we wouldn't regard that as some seriously difficult thing to keep or complicated either because we just wouldn't think to do it. We'd be used to not doing it. Now, as far as all these laws of sacrifice are concerned, if you were a layman in Israel, you didn't have to worry about it because the only people who did the sacrifices were the priests. Now, it's true. A few minutes ago, we read Leviticus chapter 1, and when you came in and brought your offering, you did some of the work, but the priest would tell you what to do. He was there to help you out. And you didn't have to know all this stuff in advance. You brought the offering, and then the priest guided you, and he told you, you do this, and I do that. And there you are. You got an expert there to help you out. And was it complicated for the priest? No, because they did it every day. And if you did this stuff every day, you'd learn it real fast. I always compare it to getting my car fixed. I go into an auto shop to get my car fixed, and there are all these huge fat books on the shelf that say Chilton on the spine. And it's not the Chilton who does theology. It's the Chilton who does cars. And those books are full of billions of details. And when the man opens up the hood of my car, it looks incredibly complicated to me. Let me assure you, I know absolutely nothing about fixing cars. Someone else does that for me, and I pay him for it because I'm afraid if I put my arm down in there, it would get chewed up and I wouldn't have an arm left, and then there'd be no more writing or anything else. So you see, people learn that, and they know how to fix Chevrolets, Volkswagens, Cadillacs, Fords, all different kinds of cars, cars I've never heard of. A mechanic knows how to fix, and they're all different. Some of them are fuel-injected, some of them are V8s, and some of them are 6s, and some of them are 4s. I don't even know what all these things mean, but the fact is they're all different. And yet a mechanic knows how to fix them, and he's got these books that tell him all kinds of intricate details. Well, there's a thousand times more detail in that than there is to the book of Leviticus. You see, it wouldn't take that long if we were to go off to summer camp and play at being priests. At the end of a week, I could have you all trained in how to do every bit of this, and you'd know how to do it. We could have some pretend lambs and pretend bulls and bring them in and pretend to slaughter them and do all the things that are done here, act it all out, and it wouldn't take much time at all to learn it. It's just not that complicated. And yet Leviticus is forbidding to us because it seems so complicated. And the only way to read Leviticus is to read with your imagination in full gear. You have to read it and think about the courtyard of the tabernacle, which means you've got to know something about what the tabernacle looks like. You have to imagine walking in there with your bull through the gate and meeting the priest and shaking his hand and saying hello to him and having some small talk and then explaining that you want to offer this young bull before the Lord and the priest will inspect the bull to make sure that it's not got any blemish on it 
then the priest will explain to you that it's your job to lay your hand on the head of the bull. And so that's what you do. You stand there and you put your hand on the head of the bull, which makes him your substitute. And because you're not acceptable before God, this bull will go in your stead. And then you have to kill the bull. The priest gives you a very, very sharp knife, and you slit that bull's throat, and the blood goes everywhere. And then the priest is going to stand there and gather up some of the blood, and he'll do some things at the altar and at the doorway of the tent of meeting that really you don't need to worry about, but you can watch it. And then once the bull is dead and everything has been taken care of, then it's your job to stay there for a while. It's going to take you a good afternoon to do this, but with that, unless you're used to it, then you take that knife and you have to skin the bull. And you don't get to keep the skin. The skin, by the way, is going to go to the priest as their payment for helping you out with this. And then you're going to cut that bull up into pieces with that sharp knife because that knife represents the word of God, which divides the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow. And you're going to divide those joints and the marrow in that sacrifice. And meanwhile, the sons of Aaron, the priest, is going to be over there keeping that fire going on the altar. It never goes out. And he'll put more wood on it and get it ready to burn up this burnt offering. They'll have to get that fire pretty big to burn up this whole bull. And as you get it cut up, they'll take the head and the fat and all the other pieces and they'll lay them on the altar. And meanwhile, you're going to have to take out the intestines and the legs, which are covered with dirt. And you're going to have to wash them off and get the dirt off because the dirt represents the curse. And you have to wash the bowels because they're filthy. And you get all that stuff out of it and they're nice and clean. And then they'll be put on too. And that's how it's done. Now, if you read these verses here, and we've just talked through verses 4 through 9 of chapter 1, read them with your imagination in gear, then you begin to see it. It doesn't tell you exactly what it means, although as much as possible, I will try to do that in these brief tapes, but you can at least become familiar with the details. Well, that's a little excursion to cause you not to be quite so afraid of the book of Leviticus now let's look at the general context that causes these laws to come into being. People offered sacrifices before this time. They built altars. Abraham built altars. We know that Abraham offered burnt offerings. And we see before the tabernacle was put up at Mount Sinai, the people offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And we know that they offered cereal offerings. Cain offered a cereal offering, and he did it wrongly, and God didn't accept it. And we'll see why. It has to be done on top of a burnt offering in order to be acceptable. Nevertheless, those were the offerings that were made, and we're not told a lot about them. But you see, there were not any priests. You would have done everything yourself. You would have arranged the wood on the fire. You would have killed the animal. You would have cut it up. Being sensitive to Genesis chapter 3, you would have washed all the dirt off because it speaks of the curse dust thou art, and to dust thou shalt return. So you wash the dust off, and then you would have burned it up and offered your prayers, and that would have been that. Now we have something entirely new and different, and this entirely new system has come into being. And in order for us to understand it, let's think back to Genesis chapter 3 when man was expelled from paradise. Once man was expelled from paradise, he was not allowed to go back in to God's holy garden. And that's why the altars that the patriarch set up were set up under the open sky. There was no holy environment on the earth. But when God called the Jews out of Egypt, 
He told them to erect a tabernacle and to set up a boundary of space around it and that he would come down from heaven and dwell in their midst. Now, this is a big, huge change in history. I've discussed these changes in another set of tapes that you can get called A New Creation, uh, which deals with the history of these different dispensations in the Old Testament and what they meant. But this huge change that came into effect with the building of the tabernacle meant that no longer did you worship only by looking up into the sky and offering on an altar and sending the smoke up into the sky to God. You also now worship by facing toward the tabernacle because God had come down onto the earth. And so you were grouped around this tabernacle, grouped around God's earthly throne, and you could offer not only in an upward direction, but also in a forward direction toward the place where God was on the earth. And what this meant was a new Garden of Eden was established on the earth with a boundary. Now, once this boundary comes up, you have to have priests to guard the boundary. And so God begins to set up the firstborn sons as priests, but they fall at the golden calf incident, and again I refer to our lectures on Exodus for details there, and we have a new priesthood set up. The Levites become the priests. Now, Hebrews chapter 7 verse 12 tells us that when there is a change of priesthood, there must necessarily be a change of law. Now, God had given the people the law at Mount Sinai, and now there's a new priesthood, and there's going to be a change in the law. It's important for us to see this. The law itself has changed between Mount Sinai and into the book of Leviticus. It's not changed in the sense that God requires completely different kinds of things, but the building of the tabernacle means a whole lot of new responsibilities come to Israel. And basically what it means is this. If God gets mad, God will pull up stakes and leave. And we don't want that to happen. We want God to remain in the tabernacle in our midst. But if we offend him and he leaves, then the tabernacle goes down and we're no better off than we were before. We've lost the tremendous privilege that God will be in our midst. Or if we offend God, God may stay there and send fire out from the flaming sword of the cherubim and destroy us. Either way, we've got a problem. And if our sins offend God... God may leave. And so now a whole bunch of new factors come into the situation. It's possible for us, it was possible for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and all the rest of them up until this point could offend God and make God mad so that God would send punishment down from heaven, like he sent punishment down from heaven on Sodom and Gomorrah. But now God is drawn much nearer and because God is drawn much nearer, it's possible to offend him much more quickly. And that new situation means that there are new laws. And that is what the book of Leviticus is largely concerned with. It is largely concerned with a whole bunch of new things that came into existence with the building of the tabernacle, new responsibilities that Israel would have to prevent God from becoming offended and leaving. Now, it might be useful for us to look at how the law was revealed in Exodus and then Leviticus and then Deuteronomy. At Mount Sinai, we have the giving of the Ten Commandments, which are in a separate category from all the other laws because they're written down on stone and placed in the Holy of Holies itself. 
And the church has always recognized the Ten Commandments as having a much more abiding and permanent force than any of the other laws. Then comes the Book of the Covenant, which is given before the tabernacle is set up. And so even though the Book of the Covenant contains a lot of ceremonial laws that we don't keep in the New Covenant, yet it still is considerably more general and moral in character. And as we read Exodus 21, 22, and 23, we can see a whole lot more practical advice there, wisdom that seems to apply right over into the modern age and obviously can be applied in a Christian nation. And it's not as complicated as what we find afterwards. Now, what happens next is the tabernacle is set up. God tells them to build the tabernacle, and they build it. And now we have something new. God comes into their midst, and in Leviticus we have all these laws that concern keeping God in the midst so that God does not become offended. Now, these are all moral laws, but they're moral laws that address a new and different situation. And we'll have to look at them as we go. What would it mean for God to be in our midst and for God to be behind a boundary, but looking at us all the time? And if we offend him and he gets mad, then either he will bring judgment on us much more swiftly because he's drawn so much nearer and it's dangerous to have God so near. Because as C.S. Lewis said, Aslan is not a tame lion. And it's dangerous to have God so near at hand because if we offend him, then he'll get angry much faster than when he was farther away. On the other hand, God may get mad and leave, and leave the tabernacle empty or desolated. And, of course, that's what happens in Ezekiel. And then again, when Jesus leaves the temple, he leaves it desolate. It's empty, and so the abomination comes in to the desolated temple. And that's the big judgment that's predicted. If you offend God far enough, then he'll leave. He'll pull up the stakes, he'll move out, and you'll be left without God in your midst and without any protection, without any wall of fire around you. So, now this chain situation means that we've got a whole bunch of new laws that come in with Leviticus. And then in the book of Numbers, as they move through the desert and encounter new circumstances, there are modifications put upon those laws. Then when we get to Deuteronomy, we're given the law again, only this time they're all mixed up together. Because Deuteronomy takes the Ten Commandments and places the laws with the Ten Commandments, but it's all addressed into the circumstance that the tabernacle is in the midst of the people. And the difference between the case laws in Exodus 21 to 23 and the case laws in Deuteronomy is that the tabernacle is there. And so Deuteronomy gives you much more of a mixture of what we think of as civil laws and ceremonial laws. But that's for the series on Deuteronomy to talk about that. The point that I want to get through by way of preliminary introduction and thinking about Leviticus is that the building of the tabernacle and the call of a new priesthood makes a big change in the law. The law that Abraham had known, the law that had been even revealed at Mount Sinai, now it's got to undergo a tremendous expansion in details. Now, for the remainder of this time, I want us to get an overview of the book of Leviticus. Interestingly, the book of Leviticus easily divides into five sections. And these five sections correspond very nicely to the first of the first five commandments of the Ten Commandments and to the five aspects of the creation covenant making process that we've looked at. Ray Sutton, of course, has developed this at length in his book, 
that you may prosper, and Gary North also in his book on the Ten Commandments, both of which are mentioned in your bibliography, have dealt with this structure, and it does come to the fore in Leviticus in several different ways. And I'd like you to look at your chart that's called the Literary Structure of Leviticus, and notice that chapters 1 through 10 have to do with the sacrifices of the congregation. And chapters 11 through 16 have to do with the cleansing of God's house. Chapters 17 to 22 have to do with what I'm calling holy living in God's land. Chapter 23 has to do with holy times. And chapters 24 to 27 give what I'm calling an historical perspective. Now, these sections can be identified by changes of subject matter. Within these sections, as you can see from the outline, we can break down the literary structure of Leviticus by simply looking at the speeches that God makes. Chapter 1, verse 1, the Lord called to Moses. Chapter 4, verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses. We have another speech. 5.14, the Lord spoke to Moses. We have another speech. Chapter 6.1, the Lord spoke to Moses. We have another speech. Now, if you're looking at your chart, you see four sections there, and then a fifth, which is greatly expanded. The fifth section on the labor of the priests actually has six speeches in it. The Lord spoke to Moses, the Lord spoke to Moses, and so on down to chapter 8, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses concerning the anointing of Aaron. For reasons that we'll see, it makes sense to bracket these last two as one, and that gives us five sections here in this section as well. So we have a subsection of five. Then the cleansing of God's house. We have six sections, and we'll look at those and why there are six there. Then we look at holy living in God's land, the third large section in the book, and we have, again, four speeches, and then the fifth speech has to do with the priests, and it has five sections. Now, that's what we saw earlier in the book. Looking back at Roman numeral one, the sacrifices, the fifth speech has many parts to it and concerns the priests. Well, then finally we have five speeches concerning Sabbaths and festivals in chapter 23, and then we have five events, four speeches and one historical incident in chapters 24 to 27. Now these work out, and I think that as we go through the book of Leviticus we'll see this, they work out very well as these five parts of the creation covenant model. Transcendence and man's relationship to God is stressed in chapters 1 through 10. That's what the sacrifices were all about. And it relates to the first commandment, I am the Lord thy God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. The second section on the cleansing of God's house has to do with mediation. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images or any likeness of anything. These laws have to do in a general way with idolatry. But more particularly, the second commandment stresses the fact that there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, and that's why all other mediators, statues must not be bowed down to and worshipped. And that is the main idea in this second section. The third part of the covenant is law and what it means to bear God's name. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain or emptiness. And all of these laws have to do with that general idea of living holy before the Lord and carrying his name properly, especially the laws for perfection of the priests and sacrifices. They have to be physically perfect specimens and no physical ceremonial vanity about them. Well, then it's very obvious. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The Sabbath is the time of sanctions and judgments. Here the stress is on the Sabbath as a time of rest and festivity. 
And here it is in the fourth section. And then finally, the fifth section, remember your parents, honor your parents, has to do with historical succession. And that is the idea here. So the book of Leviticus does break down, it seems, into these five sections. And even if it doesn't, even if my outline is imperfect and is subject to criticism, this is the outline that we'll use. It's a convenient way to hang on the details of this book, and hopefully you'll be able to remember it. Can you remember it? Chapters 1 through 10 deal with sacrifices and God's transcendence and his relationship to man. Chapters 11 through 16 have to do with what? Mediation, and they deal with cleansing, all different kinds of cleansing, dietary laws, childbirth laws, and so forth, and finally climaxing with the Day of Atonement, which focuses on mediation between God and man. What's the third section? Well, it has to do with laws. The kingdom is distributed out, and particularly we have laws here, especially in chapter 19, which is just a recap of the entire law. And so the stress here is on wearing God's name properly and keeping his law. The fourth section has to do with what? Do you remember? It's chapter 23, Sabbaths. Sabbaths. And then finally, chapters 24 to 27 give uh, a historical perspective on things. You might just look at that outline there. We have the lampstand and the showbread discussed in the first section, which represent heaven and earth, the creation of the world. Then we have a historical incident involving the son of the Egyptian woman, and that recalls to us the exodus from Egypt. Then we have the Lord spoke to Moses, the eye for eye law, which reminds us of the law that was given at Sinai after the exodus from Egypt. And then we have chapters 25 and 26, which deal with the Jubilee law and assures the people that they will inherit the land and warns them that if they disobey, they'll be cast out of the land. So that looks forward to what's coming up next in the future. And then finally... The fifth section has to do with persons and the people who will keep God's law in the land and how persons are redeemed from vows. Rather, a complicated section there we'll look at when we get to. But again, the idea on the fifth day, the it's not the fifth day, but the fifth aspect of things is God stops moving directly and allows things to be handled by his image, his son. He turns over the administration of the kingdom to his son. And so at the first section of the book, we have the sacrifices, and then we turn the duties over to the priests. And then we have the whole section on the labor of the priests. And back in Roman numeral 3, when we talk about holy living in God's land, we have laws, four sections of laws, and then the fifth one is the succession part, where God turns over responsibilities to the priests. We'll look at this in more detail as we go. For now, look over that literary structure and try to get it in your mind. Become familiar with the overall drift and argument of the book of Leviticus because it's what will help us to remember what is in this amazing and complicated book. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.